blue line leaves it. Kale McCarr winds, fires, score! Now Rubido, top of the near circle, pass far side, wide open net. What a save made by Philip Grubauer. Just outstanding stuff. I am Grubauer. And Zadorov oh. smash! <laughs> oh my goodness! Yep. What a bone-crushing hit by Nikita Zadorov. And Howard Luck has no idea what day it is, what time zone he's in, and he is slowly making his way towards the bench. Hello and welcome into another episode of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, that is. I am your host, JJ Jerez. Of course, with me is Arif Dean, and we've got a special surprise for you today. We've got the man, the legend, he's now leaving us, of The Athletic, Ryan Clark. Ryan Clark, thanks so much for joining us today. And no problem. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I was hoping that you would be able to do this episode with us because... um it's not going to be the same with you not here, but we figured we're going to get one final go of Ryan Clark and his wise and wisdomous words for all of our listeners. I mean, I remember when he joined Ryan Bolding and myself when we were still doing the podcast, and I feel like that's the only time I've really heard him do a yep. podcast, Ryan. Let's just start with that. Why were you never too involved in podcasts? I mean, obviously, we all loved your writing. We all loved the work you did, but... I feel like a podcast was really up your alley. Why, why did you never put one out for us? I mean, I appreciate you saying that. I think part of it is just because I think people hear me talk way too much. Um, and, I mean, whether it's the talking or the writing, just you just try to be aware of the fact that, like, okay, people enjoy hockey and they enjoy what you provide them, but at the same time, you just don't have the licenses to say whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And just I've always kind of learned that, there is a value in speaking, but knowing when to speak, because it goes back to something like Shannon Sharp once said about Mike Shanahan. And he said, you know, look, a loud mouth like me, I speak. Everyone's just like, okay, Shannon, we get it. But Mike Shanahan speaks because he's a guy who never really does speak that often. Everybody tends to listen. And so granted, that's something you hear as a 12 year old. And you just think, okay, if you're ever in a situation like that, just apply that then. So now that being said, I will say Eric being like, his wisdom before we leave. Like, I had this conversation with Kyle Keith, and we were talking about the reactions on Twitter to me leaving. And Kyle was like, He's not dying. He's not <laughs> yeah. dead. Yeah. He's just moving to Seattle. You know, I think I think those reactions on Twitter were really cool because there was that Colorado contingency that was all about, you know, acting like you're dying. But then there was that entire contingency of the athletic and people at NHL.com and all over the all over the, the NHL media world that were like, hell yeah, this is a great move. This is put it this way. I follow a couple hundred people on Twitter and there wasn't a single person that wasn't tweeting about it in that moment when that article came out. And I thought that was really awesome because it just goes to show the impact you've had, not just on this specific beat, not just on this city and this franchise and the fans here, but the NHL world in general. And you've been here for what? 24 months? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the wild part about it is it's all humbling. But I don't necessarily try to look at it like that. I just think the important thing is it's 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 something where I think you realize, like, you care, your family cares, like, your close friends care. But to see, like, that many people care and take the time out, like, it means a lot. But you also just don't try to make it something, like, more than what it is. Because, like, I know, like, the three of us have all had conversations about stuff. And I mean, you two know me really well. And it's one of those things right here. You guys have oh, like the impact you're having. And it's like, 
I don't view it that way. Like I'm someone who came to Denver to cover a hockey team and fulfill a lifelong dream. And I'm leaving to continue that dream on a platform. You know, I never thought I'd have, but at the same time, I don't know if I look at it in any more grand terms than that. I mean, the running joke in my house with my wife, because like she'll, she'll sit there and she's probably going to hear this. So I'm going to take a shot at her and there's not a thing she can do about it. <laughs> she'll be like, do you realize the impact you're having? And, what it all means to see someone like you in this space. And it's like, here's the thing. I'm not John Lewis crossing the Edmund Pettus bridge. Now that said, like, I mean, yeah, I'm aware of like certain dynamics and that's something I take seriously, but otherwise I just look at it as like, I'm just fortunate enough to do something that at one point in time, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to achieve. Of course, we're here to kind of say our, you know, formal goodbyes to you and, and kind of have some Dear fun 11. with you while, while we're <laughs> at Gavin it. Here today. And like you said, you kind of brought a wonderful in. thing called life. <laughs> you shook up the whole Avs media scene, right? You came in here and kind of just raised the bar for everybody. Once you jumped in to the uh, press box, suddenly you saw everybody kind of elevate their game. But let's, let's look at what's happened more recently. I mean, with the racial movements and everything like that. And honestly, this was something I meant to ask you back when you joined me and Ryan, but it was a much different landscape back then. It sure. was almost like uncomfortable for me to bring this up. But now that, you know, the NHL and the Hockey Diversity Alliance is making obvious movements towards diversity and everything like that, I feel like you were quick to jump on that and really kind of, you know, build some more uh, reputation for yourself through those stories. So just how important are those stories to the NHL right now? And, and obviously you're a part of the movement and, and want to be a part of it. You know, just talk, talk us through your mindset and what you think about when you have to go and attack stories like that. Sure. Don't know if I could, you could say I'm part of the movement. I just I write about it more than anything. But, but the athletic has, you know, the athletic is in a I sudden don't think, driver's seat. I don't seat. think you give yourself enough credit. You don't. Because he's so humbling. I this mean, is, even before this, is, this, this he's is trying to tell us not to so, talk. You have to understand, Ryan, that you came into uh, an organization and a franchise where, you know, growing up as a kid, I was that little nerd, seven, eight year old that always connected a journalist with a city, a journalist with a team. And there really never was one name to connect with the Avalanche. In two years, I now connect you with the Avalanche. My friends back home connect Ryan Clark with the Avalanche. And to say that you're able to do that as, let's face it, a minority and a black African-American writer that covers an NHL team. Also is Hispanic. Also Hispanic and is from Toronto. And he, he's, he's got all the connections. I love it. He's got, he's got all those connections. Um, to be that person and to have sort of built this reputation that you've built again in two years, in two years where every player, every, every, uh, in the story you wrote, you talked about McKinnon and Landeskog reaching out to you. You talked about all the players. You talked about Mosier and Keith and all these guys reaching out to you and Joe Sackick and Jared Bednar and everyone reaching out to you when you had something personal going on. It just goes to show the impact you've had. So as much as you want to say that you're not a big part of this movement, you really are. And and I know and I know that it's going to be really hard for you to basically deal he with the next. Talking about he's going to have to deal with the next hour of us basically kissing ass because it's what all the fans want to do. It's what everybody wants to do. But in Twitter, you get what is it, 140 characters to do it. We get an hour of just rambling on about it. So you're going to have to answer to us on behalf of the Avalanche fans. So much for this week's episode of Hockey Mountain High. <laughs> Next week, we'll have on Ryan Boulding, where he will sit there and talk about it. That guy's not welcome Ball on my Arena. podcast. <laughs> Is it the can or not the can? To be determined. Um, I mean, I appreciate you saying all that. It really doesn't mean a lot. Um, 
I think to answer your question first, and we'll jump to kind of what you just said, Eric. Yeah. This is an interesting time for the NHL, just because, I mean, you look at this past summer, and it was a conversation everybody was having, and the scientific evidence really shows with what went on with COVID, everyone's indoors, they're on their phones, televisions, whatever, and you couldn't help but see what happened with George Floyd. But then you talk about what happened with Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Jacob Blake happens later. And it's this discussion that it's not going away. But it's that it's that context of the understanding that for like people of color, this is a discussion that we've all been having since we were five years old. And so to see a league like the NHL go through it, it was interesting in the sense of the NBA has been a league that this is what they do. This is what they talk about. You look at the majority of their players. You look at their fan base. You look at just kind of how these are discussions that are important to what they do and what they believe. The NFL is having these discussions, and it's been difficult discussions for a lot of nuanced reasons. Major League Baseball is a league of Jackie Robinson, and these are discussions that have been had. But there are also other discussions that are being had about race. Whereas if you look at the NHL, it's never really been that way. And so when you're looking at what other leagues are doing, you take the WNBA, the NWSL, Major League Soccer. Like, those are leagues that may not get the attention like the NFL or the NBA, but they are leagues that are taking a stand on this. And everybody's looking at the NHL going, what are you going to do? And it's something that I know Erev and I have talked about, but like really the quantifier here for a lot of people was if NASCAR is taking a stance. And that is not a league or an organization really known for entering these conversations. <laughs> like it put the NHL in an interesting position. And I think the thing you try to do as a journalist is you try to be fair and you try to be objective, but like you do it with the idea that you know that there's always going to be people who are frustrated about the situation. You're going to have the crowd of people who says, I want an escape from this. Well, there are people who don't get an escape from this. And then there's the crowd that says, well, I felt like you acknowledge both sides too much and you need to just outwardly say racism is horrible and racism is bad. But the thing you have to say to those people is the reason you have to remain objective as a journalist is you have to acknowledge there are people who are okay with racism. Like this isn't something like cancer where if someone were to say, hey, I think cancer is a great thing. I like cancer. I cheer for cancer. There's going to be that natural reaction from everyone around them to say, who thinks like that? Racism is not that much of a black and white, no pun intended, kind of subject. There are people who are okay with it. And you have to acknowledge it because if everybody agreed racism was universally bad, we wouldn't be having this discussion. We wouldn't be having these conversations. And so like, the thing that you try to do as a journalist is you try to lean into different things that you've learned in your past about how to cover these issues. But then you also understand it from the context of you cover a sport that's never had to deal with this. So all you try to do is you try to ask the elementary questions that allow people to have an entry point into this, but then you try to make it more complex and nuanced to help them understand this is why it matters. So I'll say this, I'll stop talking, but when it came to the big meeting, the players had in the Eastern conference and the Western conference and the athletic said, yeah, go ahead and write a column. One of the points I wanted to convey to people is people are like, well, Ryan Reeves, Pierre Edward Belmar, Nazem Kadri. Like, they're millionaires, they're pro athletes. Like, what would they know about it? Here's the thing. To a racist, it doesn't matter what your bank account says or what your profession is. Yeah. Like, they, they're not going to like you based off the color of your skin. And that is something these men have to go through. Like, 
with Belmar. Like he's a he's the son of a mixed race relationship growing up in France. So it's not enough that like being black, but it's also the cultural example there. And to take it a step deeper, like you look at the time he grew up in France, like France 98 with the World Cup team was something that's been a very interesting discussion. And as someone who's also a French heritage, like that national team drew a lot of attention because like when you think of what traditional France looks like, you think of white men who look like Michel Platini and Didier Deschamps. But with that team, you had Patrick Vieira, who's the son of Senegalese immigrants, who I believe was born in Senegal. You have Lilian Turam, you have Zinedine Zidane, who is uh, Muslim, you know, born goat. in Marseille. Um, you have Thierry Henry, you have David Trezeguet, who he was born in France, but grew up in Argentina. And so, like, it's the show that the multiculturalism of France is a thing. And that's just one man's perspective. Yeah. There's what Ryan Reeves had to grow up with and, 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 and what that meant to live in a place like Winnipeg. And then there's what Nazem Kadri had to grow up with, too, by being someone who is the son of Lebanese immigrants, who is Muslim, who has had to deal with race in a way that, like, look, I know right now we are talking about this in the sense of black people and people of color, but let's not act like being Muslim has been easy in, in North America since September 11th, 2001. And so it's just like you're trying to find a way to get people to understand all this and then get like you might see them as hockey players, but the world doesn't see them this way. And when they're in a sport and in a league where they're not having these conversations, but these are daily things these men have to wrestle and grapple with. This is why it means so much. And I remember when I got to talk to Belmar back in November, it was actually for coincidentally the piece I was writing about Kadri. He went into his uh, his background. He went into growing up in France. And I always thought about the fact that growing up in France, not just in 98, but now, um, it's it's not a great place to live for someone who's who's of color. It's The racism there is obviously through the roof. And to have somebody like Belmark come from there and be able to share these stories. I mean, you mentioned the, the 98 soccer team. You can even mention, you know, some of the more previous stars, for example, Kareem Benzema. There's a there's this famous quote that he says where it's if I score, I'm French, but if I don't, I'm Arab. And yeah, those are the Ozil said the same thing about yes. the national yep. team. Yep, that's exactly right. And and those are the things that sort of stick out. Those are the things that that it doesn't matter how much money these guys make. In the end, if this is your life, this is your reality, it's something that no money can buy, no wealth can buy. And yes, I understand it's a different struggle, but it's a far more prevalent struggle and something that not many people can relate with. Yeah, and I mean, you go back to what you were kind of mentioning with Nazem Kadri, and, and people kind of don't realize that what they've been through in the past. It's kind of like the, the viewpoint that if Nazem Kadri's on your team and you are a little bit racist, you're going to like him, right? What, especially if he's performing, he's doing what he needs to do. But the second he stops, then that's when the racism kind of kicks in. It's kind of the same way with the media, right? You kind of have to tiptoe this line where people are going to read your article and then suddenly racist people are going to be offended by your article. So considering you're on a major platform with the athletic grown as much as it has been, how did that, you know, how did you have to tiptoe that line? Did you find some maybe bad feedback, some backlash off of, you know, fighting the good fight? You know, it's going to be there. So you don't yeah. really think about it or worry about it, but you do in the sense of, were you being fair? And it's one of those, if someone says you're overly fair, I can live with that as opposed to you were being biased. And I think that's just a construct any responsible journalist should adhere to, regardless of your subject matter. But when it comes to suing like those sort of stories, like it's something that 
you decide, do you want to volunteer to cover this or not? And that's not just so much because of the fact that I'm an ethnic minority. It's just as a journalist, we all want to be involved with the biggest stories possible. And with this, it's just, it's thinking back about the experiences you've had. And so not that we want to continue on this for too, too long, but when I was a reporter in Beaumont, Texas, it was a city that I forgot what journal did a study on it, but they declared it to be the new self-enforced Jim Crow or segregation because like white people lived in one part of town, black people lived in another part of town, Hispanic people lived in another part of town. And like living there, you learn how race dynamics works in everyday lexicon to the point where like with football, you talk to a high school football coach and you say, okay, you're playing Central High. Tell me about Central. Oh man, they're athletic. They're fast. They get to the ball. Like just they swarm their speed all over the field. Okay. Um, you're playing Lumberton this week. Tell me about Lumberton. Well, you know, it's like they have like 11 coaches on the field and they're all disciplined in what they do. System team structure. Fundamentals. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's coded language. Yeah. And like you start learning more and more about that and learning how to dissect those things. Excuse me. That you get to the point you are now. And it's like you're able to identify these things on top of just paying attention to culture and society. And you hope like what you write and what you're able to portray is something that gives people a fuller picture than what they had before they read. I just think you were a pivotal part. I mean, not only in me and Arif's life, but in all young media, you know, people uh, uh, eventually aspire to be media. Um, you know, you really kind of showed everybody that it is possible. I mean, I've been here before you. I was in that press box, but I had always been a little bit held back because of, you know, I have dark skin. And I know Arif kind of has that in the back of his mind, too. But when you showed up and you kind of said, no, it doesn't matter what I look like. It doesn't matter anything. What matters is the quality of my work. Um, you know, I think it really set a, a message across the NHL and, and the NHL media. And I love the way, you know, you kind of dug that path out and now people are following your footsteps to kind of okay talking about this now and writing about it you know and that's the thing that was you know really cool for me joining this be a year after you were here and being able to sort of rely on you and lean on you for this one season which unfortunately was cut short is that you know i i came into this you know I'm, I'm i'm the arab kid from dearborn michigan that has no idea what the hell he's doing in an nhl press box and that's kind of the feeling that jj's had for the last five or six years but you came into this not just with the feeling of i'm going to you know just let my work do the talking but you came in with this personality that is very outgoing very confident and you didn't stray away from who you are even a little bit because of the color of your skin which a lot of people do which i do you know i'm not as outspoken i don't do things as you know as out there as somebody else might just because i think i might be judged because of this and to see that and to see that not only were you respected granted there will always be people as they say haters gonna hate you're always gonna have somebody on the other side of that but to see you expand and excel in this role to the point where like i was saying a few minutes ago when you tweeted you were moving to seattle the entire hockey world was talking about it i mean that's happened twice this week it happened once with the guy that's been broadcasting nhl games with four for 47 years and doc emery and it happened when Ryan Clark got the job in Seattle. And think about that for a moment. Doc Emmerich has been in this for almost five decades. You've been in this for two years. And my Twitter was the exact same way. It was he big news. So it's just, it's inspiring to see that because it does, it sets that path for people like myself, like JJ and other, other aspiring journalists. Well, not to mention 
before you you throw in your two cents, you didn't even have that much of a hockey background coming into it, but that didn't stop you from kind of having that confidence, that swag to say, hey, I'm here to mess some stuff up. I'm here to shake up the whole Colorado Avalanche media scene. I mean, I guess the first thing I'll say is, I mean, this is all really kind of both of you to say, but just, I, I mean, Doc Emmerich's news, my news, like one of those things is definitely not like the other. I don't um, know. I, they're de- no, they're, they're definitely know. not, not a, like the other. Not according um, to my Twitter. <laughs> But, you know, I think any conversation, like, I have about this subject, like, I think a lot about people like Eric Stevens and Tarek El-Bashir, who, for me, have been, like, amazing role models and people I've been able to kind of rely upon about, you know, how they've done this for so long. And there are even people that the world hasn't even heard of or may have not remembered, like David Neal, who covered the Florida Panthers for the Miami Herald for several years before George Richards took over that beat. And... And so, like, the thing is, like, you just try to learn from these people and and just try to get an idea of how it all works. But, I mean, like, I hear what you guys are saying about, like, oh, changing the landscape. Like, I don't really look at it that way at all. I mean, I just – I've always tried to view it more in the sense of, you know, look, my career started in Richmond, Indiana, then went to Beaumont, Texas, Fargo, North Dakota, Lansing, Michigan, Miami, Florida, Tallahassee, Florida, Seattle, and then here. And the reason for those moves is because you get put in places where – you think you can grow and you can't for whatever reason. And so you say, you know, what can I do to make the most of my opportunity? So when the time comes, I can do the best job possible. And coming to Denver, that was always the goal. Um, Like it goes back to a conversation I once had with one of my old editors in Seattle, uh, Darren Bean, who was the sports editor of the Tacoma News Tribune. And he had said to me, he's like, you know, look, I know you said you wanted to stay here for the rest of your career. But, like, I knew when we hired you, you were not going to stay here long. We figured we'd get you here for two years. I didn't think you'd be gone after six months. And the thing I said to Darren was, it's like, you know, my goal coming here was, it was never to sit here and say, I'm going to be the best Huskies writer you've ever had. It was to say, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be unlike anything you've ever seen. And I think that's something I just tried to do here where you just hope when people read you, they look back and they go, I really enjoyed it. And I felt like this was a good time to read it and it was entertaining and I, it was informative and educational, but you just hope like you're just unique in that way. And I'll say this and then I promise I will stop talking because no one wants to hear from me, but <laughs> I, I once had think? an editor in Fargo who during a review, a negative he wrote was Ryan tries to make every story unique. He's like, that's a bad thing. It's like, sometimes a story is just a story. And I just, I disagreed with that because like, yeah, I think if you're writing about someone, everybody deserves the same amount of attention. If you're covering a game, you have to respect that every game is different than the one before the one that's going to come after it. And all you hope at the end of the day is just, it's something people resonate with. Well, I didn't mean to get too heavy too early into the podcast, but it's, it's, but it's hard not to, it's, it's, we can, it really we can literally no, do this No, for it's hours. pretty easy. You guys could just be like. So, Ryan, what do you think about what the Avs did in free agency? Well, I just think it's been a big topic <laughs> lately, and, and not only that, like I said, ever since that last time you joined our podcast, I regretted not being able to talk to you as a guy who has some race in him about having some race in you covering hockey and how different it is. And now that one-third of the, uh, what did I call it, the Colorado Avalanche diversi- Media Diversity the Alliance, media diversity now that one-third yeah. of us is leaving – um, you know, I just appreciate the way you uh, did things and came in and, and really established yourself. But again, let's take a, a hard right turn here and let's talk about 
the announcement. Let's talk about Seattle. I mean, obviously that's your home region. Uh, very exciting. One of them. Very exciting. It's the thirty second move I'm he's, making. He's from Toronto. He's from Dearborn. Every everywhere I tell him I grew up, he goes, "I grew up there too." And he's not lying. Well, no, it's not necessarily grew up or just it's just lived there. He, so like, he knows it, the area. So, so like what it was is like I was born in South Florida. And my dad was military. So between his career, my career, my schooling, it's why I moved around. So like with Toronto, it's, like, it's somewhere I've never lived, but I went there so much for summer vacation mm, that I have so okay. many friends and family to where it's more or less like I grew up there. So yeah. like when we would always go on vacation, my wife and I. She's like, I want to stay in downtown. I want to look at the pretty skyscrapers and the big tower. She's going to be so mad at you. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> I really just don't. Um, and people are like, God, I thought Ryan was a nice guy. And now he's like, you know, saying all these mean things about his wife and she can't defend herself. And it's like, yeah, that's the cool thing about being a media. No, but to be serious. Um, and then like one summer we said, no, we're doing Ryan Clark's Toronto. And so like we stayed out in Woodbridge and it was great. And. <laughs> I took her to the keg and we did Nino Diverses and she's like, Oh my God, this place is so wonderful. And it's like, yeah, I know. Let's not do it like a tourist again. So yeah, it's just one of those things where just, it's like you move around so much, like you're likely to cross paths with someone who they're like, Hey, I like, it's even hilarious. Like when you meet people from Texas, cause they're like, Oh, I grew up in Rockwall. Like it's, I'm like, yeah, no, it's a suburb of Dallas. And like, how do you know? And then you explain it. And they're like, Oh, you're a lifelong Texan like me. I'm like, no, I just lived there for two years, but but yeah, that that's all it is. It's just I've just lived too many places. And that's kind of what I think that's why everybody kind of loves you is they have something to relate to you because you have something to relate to them. I mean, I remember yeah. one day I walked into the Avs practice rink. You started speaking Spanish to me because you knew my family's from Spain. You know I speak Spanish. You ha- I, And that was out of left field. I got thrown back. I was like, oh, man. This guy's talking Spanish to me. I, 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 you know, and you have that with everybody. Everybody oh, in the press box, far. you can literally go up to and say, hey, let's relate about this. Let's relate about that. So you, you're just the most, honestly, the most cultured person I've met in a I long mean, time. I mean, the fact that I can walk around a press box in Denver, Colorado and call you my hubby is and no one knows is, what we're talking nobody about. knows what I, I, don't. I, I tried that with my roommate once i was like hey habibi and he's like what and i'm just like damn it i miss ryan clark already <laughs> he's not even gone yet but like it's funny because i i have this vivid memory that's something that's never gonna sort of escape me and I, i'm sad that i can't have that again is is every single time you would tweet out your charming or funny tweets pre-game uh before the puck drops at the pepsi center uh every time you would tweet something about kadri i would always come in there and try to be snarky and funny because hey kadri's arab and so am i so let me try to make a joke about it and i made a joke once about he's everyone's favorite habibi and there is this vivid memory i have of the first row of the press box and i'm sitting up in the second row because i'm just one of the filthy bloggers and you turning around and just nodding your head with this smile (laughs) every single time i do it and it's the funniest thing but it's hilarious because nobody else knows what the hell it means. The tweet will get like two likes and it'll be like two random Arabs that are following Ryan Clark. Right. Or Eamon. So or, it's, yeah. <laughs> Eamon's going to be like, I got a shout out. I'm, I'm so happy you just gave him a shout out. Shout out, Eamon. What's up, dog? Uh, but yeah, that's just who you are, right? You have that culture personality to you. You, ha- you have so much experience in your life. So just kind of walk us through that. You told us your dad's military, but why is it that you can relate to every single person you meet? I don't know if I really can. Um... I just think like part of it for me was as a kid, I was and still am a nerd and I openly admit and embrace that. But it's just you always want to read and learn about different things and different people and then you want to go and travel and I don't know. It's just like it's it's one of those things where it's like I'm that person who I'll read one thing on Wikipedia. Like you'll start off reading a Wikipedia entry like on the city of Denver 
And then like two hours later, you're on another Wikipedia entry about like, here's the space time continuum <laughs> explained with a shoestring. Love it. And it's like, tell me more. Love and it. So I think that's just what it is. It's just like, you always get curious and interested about other places. And um, I think that's just kind of how I've always been. And I mean, like there was a night, like my wife and I, um, we just decided for her birthday, we just, we're going to go to dinner and all that. We just did Uber. And like, we're just talking with our Uber driver. And I was just like, where are you from? And he was just like, oh yeah, like I'm from Senegal. And then all of a sudden we just start talking about Senegal and this and that. And then I was like, yo, so Sadio Mane. And he's like, you know who Sadio Mane is? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's like, dude, like I watch European soccer like every Saturday yep. and Sunday and, and Tuesdays and Wednesdays with the Champions League. And that so, guy's got a great story. Yeah. Sadio. And so like we started talking about like Sadio Mane, Koulibaly. And then we started talking about like old school Senegal, like well, like El Hajj Diouf and those dudes when like they upset France in the World Cup. And Papa so, Baba Dio, 2002. Oh, I know. Oh, and that my heart hurts. Yeah. So, I'm a big France fan and it just it hurts. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's just what it is. It's just. You, you get curious about the world and you just relate to people, I guess, as I best love as that. you can. I love the soccer talk today, boys. So I'm do I. I right when you mentioned the 98 <laughs> World Cup and said Zinedine Zidane and then I we're talking about well. Benzema, I'm like, oh, yes, this is right up my alley. I'm the soccer, I'm the French soccer nerd for whatever reason. But let's take this back to Seattle, Ryan. Sure. I have to ask you. So Seattle is an organization that, you know, not to bring it back to the diversity, they're doing things differently. They have... They have every single one of their hires has been sort of let's let's say progressive is the best way to put it. Where do you feel you fit into that? Because, you know, you you told us before this that you've had people in the organization that are reaching out to you. You've had people in the organization asking you to come cover this team. How important is that to you and how excited are you to be there to be a part of this franchise, this historic 32nd expansion team? From the ground up, basically. I mean, I I guess the thing is, is just like you... Like, it's cool to kind of see people be like, hey, it'd be awesome if you came and covered it. Because when you go up there for assignments and, like, you get to talk to people and they know that you you covered, you know, the Huskies and you know the area. And then they hear the questions you ask. They're just like, wow, like, if this could happen, this would be awesome. And it just worked out that way. Don't necessarily think about it, like, in the sense of, like, where I fit in as much as it is just you just want to go do the best job you possibly can. Like, it's no different for me than than coming to Denver. I would say really the big difference is it's just like with Denver, it's like, you know, you have Nathan McKinnon and Gabriel Landeskog and Miko Rontanen and Eric Johnson and guys like that. Whereas if like Seattle, you don't know what the players are going to be. And so really it's just more about how do you do the best work? I mean, like I get where you're asking, but like, I just, I don't know if I can really view it that way um, in the sense of like, where do I fit in all this? Like I'm just a guy who's covering hockey. Um, you just yeah. hope that you can, do it to the best of your ability and write the sort of stories that like resonate with people. And that's really just kind of it. And again, I am the worst and most boring interview because you guys are expecting like these world-class like answers. I can't wait to see Twitter react and tell you otherwise again. Twitter's got other things to do. Like Twitter is probably like, Worried about other things right now. All right. Well, we're 30 minutes into the podcast. Let's stop talking about you for a second. Thank you. Let's look at the Kraken itself. I mean, how awesome was it to see the Vegas Golden Knights suddenly be the new team and be relevant and make it all the way to the Stanley Cup final? Do you in any way anticipate that same thing going on with Seattle? You know, no one knows because if you look at Vegas and you look at Seattle and there's such different dynamics. Like with Vegas, it had been, what was it, 17 years? Well, let's say more than Since 15. the last. Yeah, yep. since the last expansion draft. 
And so, like, you've had so many general managers come in and out to where you're like, okay, everybody understands this differently. The Vegas draft happens. People look at that team and you go, okay, what are some moves that you maybe wish you hadn't made? Like, people look at Alex Tuck and go, yeah. maybe the wild wish they hadn't done that. Or Florida. You look at, I was about to say, Jonathan Marchessault and Riley Smith. You look at those moves and go, maybe they shouldn't have done that. Whereas if you look at Seattle, and it seems like, teams are going to learn that lesson general managers are going to learn that lesson and not to always bring everything back to covid but when you look at covid and you look at the flat cap and how it's impacting everything it's now just gone beyond what they could do to protect certain players it's how does the flat cap influence everything yeah so an example i've been using on radio this week when people talked about this is let's use vladislav nemesnikov nemesnikov was someone who his last deal had earned four million annually over the last two years. He goes to Detroit and he signs for what? Two million a year. Yep. And it's because of the flat cap. And so who's to say, like, who's the guy that, you know, look, under a regular cap situation, he doesn't enter free agency because the team has the money to afford him. Whereas if now, given how long this thing is suggested to last, Seattle might be in contention for players that they didn't know existed. So in some ways, like to compare Vegas and Seattle right now, it's almost apples and oranges because like, General managers are smarter and more aware of what they need to do. And also, because of something like COVID, it's changed the financial component. But then the other thing is, because this is an Avs podcast, like, let's think about the last time the Avs were in this position. Like, they had decisions to make, but it's not like right yeah. now, where you're sitting there saying, are you better off going with a 7-3-1? Are you better off going with a 9-1? Like, what do you do defensively? Because, like, you look at Devontae's, and we can get into this here in a second. Yep. But he has one year of team control left, which is the upcoming season. Let's say they sign him to a two-year deal. How is that expansion draft going to look, knowing that, like, Eric Johnson is taking up one of the spots unless you ask him to waive his, you know, no movement clause? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of moving parts. So a team like Colorado is going to lose someone good. Yeah, and that was actually going to be exactly where I was going to take the podcast here is I had two questions for you. So for starters, you have an avalanche team who, like you said, if Eric Johnson eats up one of those roles, you're clearly going to go out there and protect. If you go with the 7-3-1 format, Gerard and Makar and your defense is right there is done. That means you're leaving Ryan Graves and Devon Taves unprotected. The second option is if you get Eric Johnson to be a trooper and go and waive that clause, now you have to pick between Taves and Graves. And like you said, Graves is under contract for three years. We know this. And even after that, I believe he's finally a UFA. And yeah, he's will be a UFA after that. Because well, they had two years of team control. Exactly. Yep, correct. And let's say you sign Devontae's for a two-year deal, and then you protect Devontae's. You're you're potentially giving up two more years of grinding graves under team control for Devon to walk away one year later in free agency. Now, my question is, number one, who do you think the Avalanche could potentially lose? Would it be a defenseman or a forward? And number two... How do we talk to Ron Francis into making Ryan Clark the guy that goes from Colorado so we can just keep all these guys here? <laughs> I'll answer that first question and only answer that first question. Um, in terms of who the Avalanche could lose, it just it all depends upon like the format and who they choose to protect. So one of the players that they could risk losing might be someone like a Jonas Donskoy. It could be someone like a Tyson Jost. Because, like, let's say they do 7-3-1 for the sake of this discussion. Landeskog, McKinnon, Rontanen, Burakovsky, Kadri, 
And then let's say the last two are Comfer and Jost. That leaves 72. Now, what is the big wrinkle in all this is Brandon Saad said, hey, Denver's a place I've thought about for a while. And while the thought is he's a rental, what if he says, I want to come back? Do you try to sign him before this, the end of the season? And if so, then that's one more forward who's left unprotected. Or do you run the risk of saying, we're going to bring you back. But in order to protect as many people as possible, we have to let you become an unrestricted free agent with the good faith that you do come back here as opposed to taking an offer elsewhere. And that's what makes something like what your question is proposing hard to answer is because there are so many different variables to the point where like we could just do a podcast on that alone. And that's where it's like when you look at defense, like you said, Gerard and McCarr are going to get protected. If yeah. Eric Johnson doesn't waive his clause, then it's do you go with Graves or do you go with Taze? So whoever you keep, it's likely that that person who's the odd person out could get selected. Either way, what it comes back to is this. They're going to have a tough decision to make, but when you look at the way free agency played out, they might not have to worry about the grubauer Francois conversation. Because you look at Vancouver and them taking Braden Holtby, we know they're going to protect Thatcher Demko. It's the way it looks right now. And then you're going to be able to get someone in your system or a backup for a cheaper price than the $4 million you're paying Braden Holtby right now. So that's going to make Holtby exposed. And if you're Seattle, why not? Yeah. And then you look at Montreal. Like Montreal has Caden Primo waiting in the wings. He should be fine. You're going to protect Carey Price. And even if you didn't protect Carey Price, like if you are a Ron Francis team, which Ron Francis is known for being financially conscious, do you want to put one-eighth of your cap space into a goaltender who costs $10.5 million? So no, you're going to look at someone like Jake Allen as a possibility. And so like that's, again, just the weird part about all this. is like Five weeks ago, the question would have been, do you keep Grubauer? Do you keep Francois? Who do you protect? Whereas if now it might not be a, it might be a non-issue because of what's going on, and so it's not to like dodge or evade the question. It's just yeah. like there's so many unknown variables. You know, and it's a great thing that you mentioned that because the Francois and Grubauer conversation, you know, back in February, March, that was it for me. Is which one of these two guys are the Avalanche? It was like lose? that for a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. And I remember I had a conversation with you at, at, at the practice rink way back in November, and the conversation was, "Oh, we're gonna protect." Uh, Gerard and Makar, and then you have to hope that Eric Johnson waves so you can protect Zadorov. Boy, how things have changed, and they continue to change. And it's gotten to the point, like you said, where there are so many goaltending options out there because of this roulette that happened this summer. And the Avalanche have so many good defensemen. And let's say Brandon Saad resigns. Now you have either Tyson Jost or potentially JT Comfer available, along with Donskoy, along with one of Taves or Graves, if not both. It's gotten to the point where it's well past the goalie conversation. It's likely going to be a skater the Avalanche lose. And it very well could be, but either way, like, this is what goes back to the importance of drafting because like, let's say you lose a forward. This is where you're counting on Alex Newhook. Yep. Where you're counting on Martin Kaut, where you're counting on Shane Bowers, Logan mm -hmm. O'Connor. And like, and again, that's just the thing is like, yes, this off season was important for obvious reasons, but when you look at next off season, like that's going to be the most interesting thing about watching the avalanche is what is the most important facet of their off season? Is it navigating the expansion draft? Is it the fact that Cole, 
Grubauer, Landeskog, Belmar, and Calvert, and Sod are all UFAs? Or is it the fact that Kale McCarr's rookie contract comes to an end and there is no telling what they do there? Could they go long-term? Because look, before all this, you could argue Shabbat was the standard eight over eight. But here's the thing. Hmm. Shabbat signed that deal in a pre-COVID yep. dynamic. So what does that look like now? Like, Is it one of those things where you try to more you know, load it on the back end and make the AAV or it's not AAV, excuse me, the, the annual term, the structure, like lesser on the front end? Do you run the risk of maybe doing a bridge deal? Because like clearly what the Avalanche have in a car, they know what they've got. So it's yeah. not a prove it deal as much as it is. Is this the thing that makes the most financial sense that alleviates pressure on the team, but then allows McCarr and his reps to come back a few years later to say, okay, like we were, we were loyal. We were faithful. We believe in the process. And now that things have lifted and we're back to normal. Now let's have the conversation about the long-term big money deal. And or maybe th- that doesn't happen. And and I think that's a great point because that's that's somewhere where Joe Sackett can either take advantage of, you know, as, as messed up as that might sound, or might have to kick the can down the road and end up, you know, if, if in a pre-cap world you were going to get Makara at nine and a half, you might have to in a couple of years get him at 11 and a half because he only takes five or six for a couple of years to get you through that financial distress that the league is going with so or going through. So it's certainly going to be really interesting and fascinating to see not only him but even the Tampa Bays and the, and the Islanders right now with Barzal and all these teams that have to deal with it um, right now this summer going into next summer so I'm, I'm really curious to see where this goes and in Vancouver you have a couple big names that need a new contract too so it's going to be fascinating and I think it's going to be really it's it's going to be great to watch it all unfold JJ for you to jump in just to that point so think about it like this the RFA defensemen that are going to need new contracts oh boy Kale McCarr Quinn Hughes, Miro Haskinen, Ross Mustalin. That's in one that's all next summer. That's the entire future of the defense in this league. And like and the wild part is is we all just looked at what group two RFAs went through this past summer, like yeah. Ronson and Mitch Marner, Sebastian Ajo. Great and point, and, the whole crew. And we and, and Patrick Line, and we saw what that looked like. And we talked about the importance of like forwards and how like this is setting a new standard. But when you look at young defensemen, and not just young defensemen, but what those four can do. Like, let's go on a limb and deliver the most hot take of hot take in the history of hot takes. One of those four is going to win in Norris at some point. <laughs> One of those four is going to. And when you look at where this league is going with those four, they are going to all get paid. Yeah. But the thing is this. What right now makes their situations different is... Darlene is on a team where it looks like they're trying to figure things out, but you could make that argument about the Sabres for the last several years where it's like they're trying to figure it out. McCarr is on a team where there are some dudes who are going to get paid. Heisken is on a team that just made it to the cup final that has some dudes that are going to get and are already getting paid. And, and he led them in scoring. And then you look at Vancouver. Elias Pedersen is not going to come cheap. No. Brock Besser is not going to come cheap. No. Quinn Hughes is definitely not going to come cheap. And if Thatcher Demko is the goalie people think he can become, that is also not going to be cheap. So good luck dealing with all of that in a year's time. So what you're saying is the Western Conference is going to be a total powerhouse and Rasmus Dahlin is going to toil in Buffalo and trying to figure out how to get to the West. That's what you're saying. The only thing I'm inferring (laughs) or inflecting is just, if you're a general manager with those players, like it's just going to be a fascinating offseason because... 
if you're Buffalo, you might have the easiest situation because you can say, hey, we have the cap space to make this work, no problem. Whereas if you're all these other teams, like those other teams are all really good to the point where they can all compete for the West, if not the Stanley Cup. But in order to do that means balancing money. And you're going to have to say goodbye to someone with the idea that someone in your system on an ELC, they can compete and do what needs to be done. Well, it's going to be awesome for you to be in that locker room and cover somebody you've already covered. If I'm not mistaken, I think that happened once already with Dom Toninato. Yeah, so the wild part is it's like, so I covered junior hockey in Fargo for two years, and Dom Toninato um, actually played high school hockey at Duluth East. So where Fargo sits, it's on the line of North Dakota and Minnesota. So I covered Minnesota high school hockey for two years as well. And so Dom was someone that I had watched when he played at Duluth East, and, like, he was a stud at Duluth East, just an absolute stud. And so then he came to the force, and, like, our paths crossed in this and that. And so then, of course, I leave, and then here we are years later, he's playing for the Avs, and, like, he gets called up. Or no, actually, not even that. It was, like, preseason. And I see him, and I was like, hey, Dom, I don't know if you're – and he looked, he was like, wait, Ryan Clark? And I'm like <laughs> – That's oh, awesome. Oh, so you do remember. He's like, dude, of course. how Yeah, and so, like, it was like that even, too, um, when the Blues were in town last season, and um, Jordan Schmaltz came through. Hmm. Because when I was there, Jordan was a kid who was going to go to North Dakota. He was a first-round pick. Like, he didn't play in Fargo, but, like, his team was always in Fargo. So I got to know him really, really well. And so, like, that's the wild thing. So I'll share this quick story, and then I'll stop. So – I had done a UMass fan blog, um, and they were talking about a kid with the force who was committed to UMass. And so they're like, so who's someone that like stands out to you that we think you should, we think you should uh, keep an eye on? I was like, the Dubuque Fighting Saints are loaded. And like they've got Vinny Sapinari and they got Zimgus Gergensons. Like they're, and they got Mike Madison. They're all really good. There is this right winger named John Gaudreau who is committed to Northeastern. He's little. But, like, there is something about this kid where he is good. Yeah. And so to look now, and, of course, he ends up going to Boston College. But, and oddly enough, you know who was going to be his coach at Northeastern? Who's that? Greg Cronin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Small, it's, a small, it's a small world. But, yeah, just you look at him now and you're just like, Oh yeah, I saw him when he was like five foot six, and everyone's like, "Who is now this?" Now he's five seven. Five seven. <laughs> and everyone's like, "Who is this Jonas brother after murdering people?" Oh man. Well, I asked that question to ask this question. If you were a betting man, I know enough about you to know that you don't like to place wagers on much. But if you were a betting man, who would you put your money on that Seattle takes from the Avalanche? We ju- we just went through twenty minutes of this, but give us a player. One guy. I know you, you weren't able to really nail anything down. You said this or that. A lot of if ifs and buts and ifs. And you had to throw 20 bucks to win 1000 Oh, I think we just turned him into a better. He's thinking long and hard. <laughs> if it's a defenseman, let's say Devontae's if they sign him to a two-year deal with the idea that maybe it's Graves because the thing is it's like with Taves – he has a little bit more experience, which makes him a little bit more proven. Whereas with Graves, it's a matter of seeing if, okay, is last year kind of the consistent, what you could expect a new normal? It looks like it could be. So for now, we'll say Taze with the idea that that could change. If it's a forward, let's lean towards Donskoy for the fact that cap space is going to mean everything. 
and with his figure at 3.9, that is extra cap space that you could save and apply towards something like the Makar contract or Grubauer or Landeskog. Donskoy seems to be kind yeah. of that general consensus. It's, it's before before you get to where you're going to get to. It, it just makes the most sense because if you're the Avalanche at this point, especially with what's happened with free agents nowadays and the money they're signing for, like you said, Nemesnikov taking $2 million, you're going to get to that point next year with the Avalanche where you don't have the ability to spend $3.9 million on a third liner. Just want to throw out something. So someone we forgot to protect because I could hear fans screaming like, you morons, Nachushkin, you protect Nachushkin. I mean, at that at that mm. price point, you see, I yeah, I think you do. I'm of the belief, and I'm not even going to pretend to take credit for this because you and I spoke on the phone three weeks ago, and this was someone that you mentioned to me, and you said, "When do the Avalanche have the conversation of unloading JT Comfer, a 3.7 million dollar third line centerman that you can get for likely a lot cheaper?" Because again, when you're the Avalanche and you're paying McCarr and Landeskog, eventually McKinnon a year down the line, your new starting goalie, if not Grubauer. You don't have the ability and the luxury to spend 3.7 on a third-line center and 3.9 on a third-line winger. You're going to start to have to do that Toronto thing where your third and fourth line is making one or two million. You know, the interesting thing about Comfer is this. So he's a player that when he's healthy, let's say he plays all 82, he projects as a 40-point player. So you're getting production, and you're getting someone who's a two-way player, but this is where it gets interesting. So the big quantifier out here is always going to be what happens with Tyson Jost. Defensively, you look at his metrics. They are exceptionally strong. Offensively, he's always been the question for him. And the thing about hockey is this is a sport that sometimes when a guy's at 22, people say, oh, this is what he is. When it's like, no, things could certainly change. Yes, the question of what could Tyson Jost be is something that's been asked for quite a few years now. So let's say two or three. So what happens if Jost develops into the forward who can be more consistent offensively? Then the thing you got to start having the conversation about is what do they look like down the middle going forward? So you've got McKinnon, you've got Kadri, you've got Comfer, you've got Jost. At some point, you're going to have to play Shane Bowers down the middle, and he's on an ELC. And then there's also the conversation about what you do you do with Alex Newhook? Like, is Alex Newhook a center? Is Alex Newhook a winger? Like, what is he? And so that's just it. It's like someone's going to be out of that equation. So, like, let's say hypothetically, Pierre Edward Belmar's out of that equation. He's at $1.8 million, which doesn't sound like a high cap hit, but in this current era of the flat cap, it's $1.8 million means a lot. Yeah. And so let's say you decide to recoup that money and go with one of those young guys in the AHL. Then it becomes a question of how do you manage money and what's the value you place on a third line center? Maybe they feel, yeah, we can afford to pay, continue to pay three and a half million for a third line center. Because, like, the thing with Comfort is there are different things Comfort does for you. Like, yes, there's the production, there's also the fact that there's the two way ability. He fits within your system in a sense of, you know, he's going to work for possession and he's someone that you can put on the PK. So there is value at 3.5. But if you look at it, and if you're the abs, do you sit there and say, okay, we like that value at 3.5, or do we do one of two things? Do we put Newhook on the top six, assuming Saad doesn't come back, so it's Burakovsky, Kadri, and Newhook? Or in the event you resign Saad, or something else happens where you get someone who you think could slot better as a top six winger, 
do you then look at playing Alex Newhook as your third line center? But the thing is this. When you look at high-end draft picks the Az have had, and when you look at what Alex Newhook could become, he looks like he's going to be a top six player. And if he is, it's going to lead it to another conversation about where do you move the money? And that's just it, is with guys like Comfort, with guys like Donskoy, like they provide a value, they do a lot of things for you. But at that price point with COVID and the flat cap, like you're now starting to look at that and you're wondering. But again, like that's just what it is right now for everybody in the NHL. Yeah. Let's put a bookmark in that. I've got a follow-up question. But first, I've got to tell you betting men and women out there. I know Ryan Clark's not a betting man. But I know a lot of you listeners are that Week 6 football is in the books. And now it's time to review the tape and get ready for Week 7. There's no better place to get in on all the action than with DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. To add to the excitement of Week 7, DraftKings Sportsbook is bringing back their can't-miss offer. If you haven't tried DraftKings Sportsbook, I don't know what's taking you so long, but head to the App Store right now because you don't want to miss this offer. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving all new users the chance to earn a sign-up bonus of up to $1,000 when signing up using promo code MHS. DraftKings Sportsbook has endless ways for you to bet, from live betting on your favorite players. They do it all. Don't worry if football isn't for you. DraftKings is giving all MMA and baseball fans who sign up now the chance to turn $1 into $100. Oh my goodness, they have this bet back again. By betting on either this weekend's UFC 254 or by taking action on any baseball championship game. 1 to 100, Arif, can you believe it? DraftKings is safe, reliable, and secure, making it easy for you to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. So, Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code MHS when you sign up and get up to $1,000. That's promo code MHS to get a sign-up bonus of up to $1,000 for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. You really, you got after it there. We got I just want to get we, back to talk to Ryan. This conversation so is getting to, good. Ryan, obviously, I wanted to follow up that last conversation, but just in two years, you became more than an expert on this team. I mean, how big of a challenge was that for you? I, I think you were covering college football before. This yeah, is I was covering Florida. the Washington Huskies. Well, yeah, so I started off. Before I came here, I covered the Washington Huskies, and before that, I covered Florida State. Right. So then coming in, suddenly, this is a blank slate. I'm sure you've heard of the Avalanche, but weren't too in tune with what's going on in the ins and Actually, outs. so here's the thing. Okay. The NHL is something I've wanted to do since I was like 12 years old, so like... I was he knows following shit. the abs. So, yeah, it wasn't but like... But the abs abs or like you were in and out on the prospects you knew about, you know, I mean, obviously now you, you're talking about new hook. You're talking about who goes where, who signs let's for just, what. Let's just say that when A.J. Greer got brought up, people were thinking that at six foot three, 205 pounds, after being a second round pick, that they got more or less in a trade that allowed them to get that second round pick. The thought was is maybe he projects as someone who's a top nine forward, but he kept playing on fourth line and they kept sending him back and forth to San Antonio. So like it was one of those things where like I was like definitely aware because like while I love, love, love covering college football, like every sport I watch, I try to pay attention to the point where like it's super nerdy to where like what if you love get it. a phone call in the middle of the night and someone says, hey, I want you to go cover hockey and I'll offer you X amount of money. Will you do it? 
it's kind of like one of those things where like right now if someone were to call not that i would because i just took a job but if someone were to call and say hey how would you feel about going to england and covering leeds united like could you do it sure why not okay then well tell me who you believe is leeds most influential player and why that is. And if I couldn't sit here and say it's Callum Phillips because he's a holding midfielder who, despite being 5'10", 5'11", has the strength to not only win possession but move the ball around while being an integral piece of their midfield. That's why he's been called into the national team. Yeah, again, I know that's extremely neurotic, but it's a long way of saying, yes, I was paying attention. We are going to lose a damn gem when you leave. Well, yeah, I guess that answers my question. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I love that because that's something that – I've had this conversation with you and I've sort of asked you many, many times and I say this this nerdy side of me of this knowing pretty much the ins and outs of the avalanche. And I listened to you and Ryan after I uh, after I, I hung up on uh, my appearance on your radio show a couple of weeks ago. Check it out. Yeah, great, great radio show. The Hockey Show, I believe it's called. The Hockey Show. The Hockey Show. Very, Saturdays very. Saturdays at 2, Mile High Sports, milehighsports.com and streaming on the app. There we go. You're sleeping here tonight, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, when when I when I hung up that call, you 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 and Ryan were talking about me, and you said, and it's true, you said I'm more of an X's and O's kind of guy. Arif just knows the hell out of the Avalanche and the NHL. He's he's got that side of the game down. And you know, the question that I always have for Ryan is, is that going to help me cover this team? Is that something that's important enough for me to say? If I had to choose any one of the 32 franchises, I should pick the Avalanche because I have that knowledge. And the answer you always gave me wasn't a clear-cut yes. But at the same time, you know your shit about this team, about the other teams, and you're able to sort of flip-flop because you have that knowledge. You've set yourself up for success by being able to say, I know these things. I know who's on their team. I know who's in their system. But part of that, I think, just goes back to if you're going to cover a league or cover a team and whatnot you have to be able to know not only what they're doing but what others are doing around them and so a really good example of that and it's going to sound really really nerdy covering high school football in texas is what changed everything about how i covered sports so there is a school port natchez groves which one day we'll get into just kind of how port natchez groves is like everything you think of when you think of the phrase friday night lights <laughs> but they had a head coach there brandon faircloth who talked a lot about what systems meant and the sense of this is what you want to get with certain players in the sense of like, he's like, look, we're spread offense, but we want possession receivers. We want this in our linemen. We seek that. And hearing that allows you to think about it on the next level. But then you start looking around and you're going, is this why they're more successful than everyone? Is it the athletes? Is it the continuity of the coaching staff? Like, what is it? And then it starts to sort of materialize into like when you're covering college football and you're covering a school like FSU, at that time, FSU had just come off a national championship. Jameis Winston had just left the school. They'd won you know, 10 games in consecutive seasons, but there were people wondering, how do you catch up with a school like Clemson? Well, it's easy to sit there and say, well, because Clemson gets five stars in this. and that. Okay, but why do they get five stars? And it's like it's one of those things where like you look at what they have financially, what they can invest in facilities, the fact that – like. Clemson is a school that now has national power, but also it's like you start looking around and that's what allows you, I think, to kind of get nerdy about it because like you look at schools like Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, what do they all have in common that's allowed them to win? They recruit very well. What's a state they recruit? They recruit Florida. So you think about the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. One of the reasons Miami FSU and Florida were so dominant 
was because they could get all these kids from Florida and they put a fence around Florida. But now that the game has become so much smaller because of TV, because of the internet, the fact that like if you're a kid in South Florida, Oregon doesn't seem that far away like it might have 30 years ago. It's what's changed the game to the point where like, do you know what Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, Lamar Jackson, uh, Hollywood Brown, Damon Arnett, do you know what those guys all have in common? They, I don't know who any of them are. <laughs> they all played high school football in South Florida. They In Jerry Judy. They all played high school football in South Florida. None of them went to schools in the state of Florida. And now they're all guys in the NFL. So that's so it's a way of saying like you just learn how to get in that phase. So that way when you cover the abs, it's like, okay, you understand them. You understand their cap. But then you start looking around at other teams. And you're like, well, what is it that's made the abs successful? I know the easy answer is they've gotten guys like McKinnon. But it's also looking at like how hard is it to draft and develop? Because like, yes, for every McKinnon and every Rontanen, there is a group like the 2014 draft class where once Anton Lindholm was included in the Zadorov trade, the Avs have no one from that class. So it's kind of like, what did they learn? And what patterns do you see developing? So again, that was really inside baseball, but like that's just kind of the answer. Well, and now suddenly you find that the Avalanche are having a hard time bringing in free agents. I mean, you looked at Artemi Panarin from last year. You look at Taylor Hall this year. Everything that Joe Sackick's been able to do has been through trade. So now what used to be a destination city for NHL players, I feel like has suddenly become a flyover for free agents. And now Joe Sackick has to play chess while other people are playing checkers. Hey, I've heard that line before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just kind of be creative about who he brings in. But see, that all depends because you think about two years ago, they were able to get Matt Calvert, Ian Cole in free agency. You think about last offseason. They were able to get Donskoy, Belmar, and Nichushkin in free agency. Not the biggest names, but important. But are they players that gave them depth, something they didn't have in previous yeah. years? Absolutely. Now, in terms of getting like players in free agency, like look, they definitely did try to go after Artemi Panarin, but the challenge with that was is if you give him a big money deal, how does that impact you long-term with someone like Miko Rontanen? Which, like, to have Artemi Panarin and Miko Rontanen in your top six – in addition to the fact that maybe you still are able to go out and add Kadri and Burakovsky to that mix, like it makes them more devastating. But what's the cost in terms of someone like Miko Rontanen trying to agree to a new deal and all the financial complications that come with it? Yeah. And it's the same argument with Taylor Hall. Like with Taylor Hall, like there's a price point to pay. And people say, oh man, it's worth paying. But again, what's the long term cost? So to say, like, it's been a hard time to recruit free agents. If they weren't concerned about the cap, sure. But when you look around what's going at the NHL, like you mentioned Toronto earlier. Thank you. That I was is just going to get there. That right now has three players who are making north of $10 million. That's more than $30 million in cap space. And that right there leaves you $50 million to try to sort out the rest of your roster yeah. to the point where like you're having to do some bargain basement stuff. Now, if you are Tampa where your money is invested in five cornerstone players that you've drafted and developed like point Hedman, Stamkos, Kucherov and Vasilevsky, it's a bit of a different animal, especially now that you've won a cup. But when it's in three guys who are forwards and are talented forwards in their own right, it hamstrings you with what you can do. And if you're the avalanche, those are the things you've got to consider because it goes back to something someone in the organization said not that long ago. They have to be smart with money. Yeah. This isn't like two years ago 
where their roster was flexible enough to where they could do things like say, tell you what, we want to get Philip Grubauer, but we're willing to take on one million of the Brooks Orpic contract in each year to make that happen. Or better yet, we want to get Nazem Kadri, but to facilitate this, we'll retain $2.75 million of Tyson Berry's salary. You look at that money from the buyouts of Orpic, and you look at the Berry buyout and combine that figure, that money went back into Sam Gerrard's extension. So these are things that where they have to be different. And it's like, it's not necessarily are they a place to struggle for free agency. It's they look what they have internally and they say, it's going to cost money to keep it. And I love that you went the Toronto route because that was exactly where I was going to go with the question, you know, to, to respond to JJ's question about Panarin is Toronto went out and signed John Tavares. And at the time it was a monumental move. You already have Babcock as a coach. You have a team that's up and coming on the rise. You have Matthews and Nylander and Marner and Morgan Riley and all these young guys and Kadri on your second line. And you had the ability to finally get one of those damn homegrown guys, those Steven Stamkos, those Drew Doughty's. You finally got one of them to say, yes, I will come home. But at what cost? Basically what I'm getting at is John Tavares signing an $11 million deal over seven years. I know my answer to this, and I think my answer is yes. Do you think that drove the cost of Marner and Matthews up to where it was being 10.893 and 11.634 for Matthews? Do you think that that's because Tavares signed there? And to go on to what you just said, if Panarin came here at 12 million, does Rantanen only take 9.2 or does he say I'm worth more? So the hard part about the first one is, is everybody's answer is going to be different because you don't know all the, the variables at play. So it could be some of that, but it could also be the NHL has changed in a sense that philosophically it used to be you made your money on the back end of your career. And then, of course, teams started realizing not every player, once they get to 32, 33, 34, is going to be what they were at 28. So then the philosophy became invest younger. And everybody goes back to the World Cup of Hockey as being that aha moment in watching team North America just fly all over the ice and go, dear God, this is where the league is heading. Yeah. And so if you are an agent and you are a player like that, you are now realizing the younger you are, that's when you should start asking for the money. And if you're a team in some ways, depending upon your viewpoint, would you rather get a guy who's young, who's entering his prime, and then when he gets to be 27, 28, 29, you start looking and wondering, is this the best thing? Or do you try to give them more money on the back end knowing that it may not work out? Because not everyone is a Dano Chara. Yeah, you'll end up like Corey Perry and those and the likes of those guys. Well, but, but you say that, but for every one of those players, you look at someone like a Ryan Getzlaff, who is still an extremely productive yeah. NHL player who is in his mid-30s. So that's just the thing. It's like you're trying to play the odds. So part of it could just be, honestly, the way the league is going. We all talk about the league getting younger why that's important, why not ask for the money up front? Because back in the day, it was, no, you had to clear all these hurdles to get paid. Whereas if now, like when you look at the numbers these guys are producing at a young age and the importance of entry-level contracts and building young and remaining young, that's, that's probably one of the reasons for that philosophy, and it's why the Avs are in a the position they're in. We're getting up against the clock here. I know we got to let you go. We're keeping you longer than you had liked, but we knew that was going to happen. So let's start winding down here. I got a couple quick questions for you as 
we head out of this podcast. First of all, obviously the Avs right now are currently the favorite to win the Stanley Cup. We saw with Tampa Bay how long they've been the favorite to win the Stanley Cup. They had the Stamkos situation, very comparable to, to Nathan McKinnon, the superstar. He almost left to Toronto. He decided to stay. Could, seeing that and seeing how long and hard it was for Tampa Bay to uh, get to the actual championship, in your eyes, next year, do you think the Avalanche are, in fact, a Stanley Cup favorite? They're one of them. They're absolutely one of them. Because, I mean, you have to look at what Vegas has done. And Vegas is very much in that conversation. Tampa's in that conversation. I believe it was one of the betting sites that has the Avalanche with the third highest odds as of right now winning the whole thing. And that's just it. It's like they are set to become a contender for a very long time. It's just the challenge in that is do you view it through the prism of they're the Blackhawks and the Penguins where they're going to win multiple cups over that decade? Or could it be a situation where they're the Capitals, where those Capitals teams were and still are extremely good? They developed from within. They drafted guys in the first round. They were able to bring up guys through the later rounds who had success. But there was always that hurdle. That hurdle in a lot of cases was Pittsburgh, but the hurdle existed. And so that's just it, is you can sit here and talk about best laid plans and talent and all that, but you can't control what other teams do. And just to give you an idea of how quick the window can change, it wasn't that long ago we all looked at the Winnipeg Jets and said, the Winnipeg yeah. Jets, if 2K ever made hockey, they look like a 2K hockey team. Like every dude you look at is more or less homegrown. They're good. They've got size. They can score. They're fast they're young in certain areas you look at the jets now they are no longer that they're a good club but they want they they aren't what they were a few years ago the avalanche are in a position that looks like they could be that but again the thought is you're either pittsburgh and chicago you're the capitals or was it something where you just don't know and right now it's too early to say yeah, I mean, for, for every Pittsburgh and Chicago out there that's winning multiple cups, you have a San Jose who's had all of these great teams. You have a Washington before 2018 who's had all these great teams before finally breaking through. Uh, you have Boston who since 2011 has been one of the best teams and just can't get over that hump even when they make it to the final. And then you have the Avalanche who, you know, their Pittsburgh is a game seven. <laughs> Let's go with the cheesy question here. And, and know, I got a few of those, too. This one's predictable here. Let's look back. What would Ryan Clark of today say to Ryan Clark the first day you got to Colorado? And just what have you simply learned in the last couple of years that maybe you didn't know about yourself or just covering the NHL as a whole? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Just because you need to go through certain experiences in order to get better. And you need to have those moments of doubt. And you need to have those moments where you kind of question things because if someone comes along and gives you a playbook, okay, that's great. But like, did you really learn anything other than just you got a cheat code? So nothing wouldn't tell myself anything two years ago. And I love that you just mentioned that because that was one of the things that stuck out. So, so, so talking to you now, JJ, Ryan and I had a conversation. It was after, I want to say either game five or game six of the avalanche and star series um, game finished. It was a late night, maybe 11, 12 in the morning, 11 PM, 12 in the morning. I, at my other job had work at six 30 in the morning. Didn't give two shits. Ryan said, Hey, you want to talk? I said, yeah, sure. I went outside. We talked for 
maybe two or three hours. It was a really long conversation. Like yeah, hour and a half maybe. He's like, no, 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 slow your roll. I did not give you three hours of my time. <laughs> but he said something during that conversation when I was having one of my many how do I get to where you are kinds of conversations? How do I make it in this industry? How do I make it so that I don't have another job in the morning? This is my job. This is my career. And he said something along the lines of what he just said. It was, you have to experience things. You have to go through the grind. You have to go through the rigors to get there. Um, you know, there was a lot of tips he gave me about the fact that as a minority, those might be bigger hurdles. They might be more rigorous, uh, you know, things that you have to, you have to push through in order to get there. But that's something that always stuck with me because you know, I've been on this beat for only a year and I can't even say I'm fully on the beat because I don't travel. I've done one game on the road. It was in Detroit and that's because that's where my family lives. It was easy to do it. I did it with my guy Ryan over here because nobody else came out from Colorado except for Ryan Clark. We had a great time. We had breakfast in Dearborn. We had dinner late at night in Dearborn. I took him to Albasha. It was a great time. I miss Albasha. I, I, that was one of the best. That was my highlight. You gotta be family to go to Albasha. That that's was, all I'm gonna say. The highlight of my season was taking Ryan Clark to the most Arab place for lunch. And then bringing him to Albasha with Eamon, who we're talking about, and my brother Man, and taking him to Albasha at night and just hanging out till two in the morning, having steak subs and, and, and curly fries. It was a great time. But, you know, back to what I was saying is I, I've been on this beat for a year and I haven't even really been completely on this beat. And I, you know, like everybody else who has a passion for what they want to do is I want to sort of rush to get to where I want to be. I want to be there and I wish I can snap my finger and be there. But at the same time, Ryan's conversation sort of reminded me, you know, you're, you're a little bit, you're, you're, you know, a few years older than me and you've been doing this for a couple years. And I look at you and I say, you were in your thirties when you got to this position. And I look at you now and I, I see someone who's successful, who's growing, who's, who was able to turn Twitter into this complete shitstorm because he made an announcement a few days ago. And, and I think of the possibility of me ever getting to there. And I say, be patient. And I remember back to that conversation because you said you have to experience, you have to go through the rigors in order to reach you know, where you want to be. And you just said it again. And I think that's the best advice you can give because, you know, I look back at, you know, when I was 21, 22 and thinking I'm going to graduate college in May and be on the avalanche beat in June, how young and dumb I was. Right. And I always think back and say, is there anything I could have changed? And I always want to sit there and think of all the things I could have done differently, but I wouldn't have known that if I didn't experience what I experienced. And what you just said basically epitomizes that and embodies exactly that. And I, and I love that you were able to say that. It's the process. Like Patrick Wall always used the to The process, as we say process. in Canada. It's a process. It's the process. So my last thing for you, and I think all of our listeners are going to want to hear this, just what are your parting words with Colorado Avalanche fans? And you, you know, what do you want to say to the Colorado followers that you've had for the last couple of years who now live and die by what you do and even love that uh, – that's Snoopy, is it? No, Goofy. 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 goofy I love it, and I'll wrong. do it again. And before you answer that, I have your article pulled up that you just wrote the other day. And you did something with your article that I've never seen a journalist do. And I've never had a journalist ever tell me to focus this much on your readers. And it's fascinating to me that we, you know, we're not taught to do that. We're told to be journalists. We're told to go out there and write a story. But you went out of your way to write a couple of graphs about, you know, Benoit is always going to be among the first to post a comment. You know that, you know, Zane is a big reason for, for whatever it is over here. You know that Adrian and Taylor are always going to be holding their signs. Morgan has liked or retweeted practically every tweet you've done for that day. I think it's freaking awesome that you are able to point out these members. I know that Taylor... 
correct me if I'm wrong, but she's the hardcore Tyson Berry fan. And I know that because I've read your stories in the past where you highlighted her when Tyson Berry was traded away or when maybe when he was coming back in November for that game last year. And I love that. I love that you have that relationship with your fans. I know other journalists in this in this industry don't do that. I know other journalists in the city don't do that. So as you answer that question, I just want the fans to sort of picture that. Picture the fact that Ryan Clark's parting words, whether you're, you know, if, if you're not a subscriber of The Athletic, he had two graphs in there basically dedicated to his fans and you're observant of your fans and your readers. And and that to me is is one of the most fascinating and humbling things about you. Maybe the way to look at it is they're not my fans. I mean, they're fans of a team and I just happen to write about that team because at the end of the day, sometimes I think the thing you realize when you move around a lot and you cover different teams is people like to know is the person I'm reading, do they actually know what they're talking about? And when you've experienced what I've experienced, like, like let's take Florida State, Washington and being here. Like Florida State is a devout fan base to the point where like if you get one stat wrong, they're going to remember it to the point where it's just like they're going to question your, your credibility. And when you go cover a team like that, it gives you some insight into how much it means. So then you go cover the University of Washington where they look at it as, wow, you're leaving the ACC in Florida State to come here? Like, this is awesome. And the way they welcome you and the way you do journalism, it's something like you're really appreciative for. And I think coming here, the reality is it's like, you know that there are people in this market who've been around longer, who are more established and people feel a sense of loyalty and you're coming with the athletic and you just don't know how it's all going to work out. And so when you do these stories and people take the time to read and the time to comment, you feel the least you can do is give part of your time back to give them an answer that hopefully makes sense. And then over time you start seeing this community grow. And next thing you know, like you just come to see like certain names and certain faces at the practice facility or at games and certain, you know, names on Twitter um, that, you know, it just, it lets you know, people are, are, are caring. And so with that, you just want to say thank you to people because you know, they don't have to, invest their time and invest their money and into what you're reading but like more importantly like and at the risk of sounding selfish like it's just you're grateful to these people because they help you live out a dream you didn't think that you would ever get a chance to obtain and so like you just sit there and you think about everything you've gone through and like not to end it on this like really sad note but the day everything became public I had a Totino's pizza for lunch because when I was in Richmond, Indiana, I only made $26,000 a year before taxes and it's all I could afford. That's awesome. I love that. And it's one of those things where like you look back on that and when you're writing about Wayne County, Indiana and the Rust Belt, you don't know if people really care. Like you don't know when you're sitting in a room at an editorial board meeting and you're talking to some House of Representative named Mike Pence, you don't know. Yes, that Mike Pence. <laughs> you really don't know if people are going to care. And so to be at this point where you've been fortunate enough to be in an industry this long that's gone through layoffs, that's gone through some really difficult things, you're fortunate enough to be in this position. And for the people who took the time to read you, you're just extremely grateful. So you just you want to say thank you. 
And I think our fans are, you know, your fans. I'm not even going to say they're my fans because, you know, a lot of people are going to be listening to podcast this podcast because I'm going to uh, ask you to retweet it and to tweet it out because we want your fans to be the ones. And like like you said, they're Avalanche fans, but they're your fans, man. They're, they're here to read and listen to Ryan Clark. Uh, I love that you just shared that story because as, as hilarious as it sounds, Ryan, my version of that is Albasha. And that day that we covered that game in Detroit and we finished that, you know, I, I woke up in my mom's basement where I've basically lived as, you know, up until the age of 26. And I drove to downtown Detroit in my mom's old beat up, you know, Jeep, whatever the hell that car is that I, that I drove you around in. And we went out for breakfast. And then I, I went from my mom's house to covering an NHL game and from covering an NHL game to Albasha. Where two, three years ago, me and my best friend Jafar, who you know I've told you so much about, and or me and Amen, or me and my brother, I would work at U of M Dearborn and cover some ACHA hockey game or some NAIA volleyball tournament that I really don't give a shit about. And then we'd end up at Albasha and I would sit there and think, when the hell am I going to move to Colorado? And everybody would always tell me, why do you still live in Dearborn? And I say, I don't know, I'm waiting for that day to get to Colorado. And I think that that to me is always going to hold a place in my heart that I was able to go from the, uh, I was going to say the Joe Louis Arena. God, I missed that place. From Little Caesars Arena to take you and go to Albasha and eat there. It was like this thing where it all came full circle and it was exactly that same type of feeling. And, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that story because it just goes to show that everything always comes full circle and, you know, never forget where you came from, never forget how you got here. And, and the fact that you in your position and your stature and, you know, what you've done in this industry feel the same way is humbling. Yeah. Well, I think that puts a, a solid bow on this podcast, Ryan. Thanks so much for joining us. We can't wait to see what you do in Seattle and we can't wait to see you back in the Colorado press box when the Kraken come to catch an L. And uh, I will say that this podcast has to end on your word. So take it away, Ryan. End it, end it with we out you too. I'll end it by saying this. Um, it's been the best experience of my life. And to anyone who's ever read a story or even taken a second to listen to this podcast like you've been a big reason why um i guess the only request i have is they just continue to support people like you two who do a really good job and you're two people i love to death and i want to see you guys be successful so just yeah i i want nothing but the best for you too and just again to everyone who's out there like thank you for reading and thank you for making the time it, that's why i was able to achieve my dream and I'll fucking do it again. Together in the storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand.